Okay. Assalamu alaikum and good morning. It, we are uh, at Muslims for Humanity Zoom uh, that has been arranged. Uh, we've gotten the esteemed Professor Salim Abdul Karim, uh, and he's going to be giving us feedback uh, in terms of the impact of COVID in South Africa. Uh, just before we start off, we just would like to introduce Muslims for Humanity. Muslims for Humanity is an umbrella organization. It is not uh, a, another uh, NPO, but it is there to consolidate all the NPOs and assist the NPOs in processing of data. Uh, we are a donor-led organization, uh, primary objective in terms of ensuring that post-COVID, the world is, or the, the donations and the work, work that NPOs do are stretched. Uh, just a little bit of an introduction to uh, Muslims for Humanity, or further introduction to Muslims for Humanity. Okay, we do have Molana Venka on, so um, I will be asking Molana to first do an opening dua, and then we'll go over into an introduction for Muslims for Humanity. Molana Venka, if we could open up with a dua, please. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahilladhi hadana lihada wa ma kunna linahtadiya lawla an hadanallah. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina wa Mawlana Muhammad wa ala ahli Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallim. Oh, the most merciful Allah, the most compassionate Allah, the most forgiving Allah during this time of crisis, is in the plight of the, of the world, all those who are suffering, all those who have contracted the virus, and all those who are suffering with various different sicknesses. Almighty Allah, you grant them complete cure. You grant them complete Cure those who are suffering, those who are suffering from poverty. You make it easy for them. We ease in the plight of the humankind and use us to serve humanity. Allahumma rabbana taqabbal minna inna ka anta sami'ul alim wa tub'alina inna ka anta tawwabur rahim. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam tabarati ya zal jalali wal ikram. Sami'ana wa ta'ana ghufranaka rabbana wa ilayka al-masir. Birahmatika ya arhamar rahim. Shukran Mulana and thank you for the dua. Um, to do a brief introduction into the Muslims for Humanity, I now call upon uh, Shuaib Musa, who is the chairperson of the PR Committee of Muslims for Humanity. Shuaib, over to you. Assalamu alaikum and good morning to all our listeners and viewers. Thank you, first and foremost, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us today. Uh, dear listeners, so Muslims for Humanity was conceived during the COVID-19 lockdown in South Africa by concerned donors primarily based at this stage out of Durban, understanding the impact that this whole COVID disaster would have on our economy, on our civil society, on NGOs, and most particularly on those that are most vulnerable. As a result of, of the engagement of like-minded stakeholders, businessmen, professionals, donors, and other humanitarians, have come together to support our various NGOs to continue their good work more effectively during the challenging times that lie ahead. It is important to note that Muslims for Humanity is not, a human, not another NGO, but an association led by the donor community to support all NGOs through advocacy, advisory, and technology solutions in helping every little bit go a long way. Now, we are aware that as the impact of COVID has a more and more devastating impact on the economy, um, that the amount of donor funding available and the donor resources available are going to become more scarce as we go forward. And the intention really is to, spit, to, 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 in other words, create more bank for our buck. 
Um, so our intention is to holistically attempt to support all the various NGOs that play within the, 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 the public service sector and civil society in South Africa with an intention that by coordinating and by bringing together our various resources, we can achieve a lot more. Uh, Muslims for Humanity does not seek to replace the work that is being done by any of the other organizations, nor do we seek to usurp any of the good work that they do. And it is with this intention, inshallah, that we hope that by coordinating and bringing together all the various NGOs and civil society organizations, that we can achieve a lot more with the very scarce and very little resources that we have. And we hope over the course of the next few months, over the course of the next few years, that we will be able to foster unity within the greater civil society sector of South Africa. Apart from that, we look forward to your support. We thank you all also for taking the time to join us today once again. And without further ado, I'll hand back to our program director, Mr. Mohamed Kaka, who will introduce our, our guest speaker today. Thank you, Mohamed. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction to Muslims for Humanity. Um, the star of our show today is obviously Professor Salim Abdul Karim. Uh, if you haven't heard of Professor Karim, then you haven't heard of COVID-19, and you've probably been uh, not around for the last three months. Uh, Professor's CV extends over 100 pages, and our webinar will be taken up just going into that. So I'm going to briefly touch on uh, some of the information that is available on Professor Karim. Professor is a clinical infectious disease epidemiologist who is widely recognized for his scientific contributions in HIV prevention and treatment. He is the director of the Center of the, for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa, CAPRISA, the logo that you see behind Professor. He is a global, uh, he's the professor of global health at Columbia University in New York. He serves as a pro-vice chancellor of, the res of research at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. He is an adjunct professor in immunology and infectious disease at Harvard University, medicine at Cornell University, and an associate member at the Reagan Institute of Massachusetts, Massachusetts General Hospital um, and Harvard University. He previously served as the president of the South African Medical Research Council. He is the chair of the South African Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 and a member of the Lancet Commission on COVID-19. He is the chair of the UNAIDS Scientific Expert Panel and the World Health Organization's Strategic and Technical Advisory Committee for HIV. He is a member of the World Health Organization TB HIV Task Force. He is ranked among the world's most highly cited scientists by the Web of Science. He serves on the boards of several journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet Global Health, Lancet HIV, and MBIO. He is also a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for Global Health at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. His awards include the African Union's Kwame Mukaru Award, Africa's most prestigious scientific award, the Kuwait Al Sumait Award, and the Canada Gardner Global Health Award. He is a member of the U.S. National Academy of Medicine, the American Academy of Microbiology, and Association of American Physicians. He is a fellow of Royal Society. Professor, I hope I haven't left out anything, and uh, I do apologize if I mispronounced any of the awards, but over to you. Uh, thank you very much, Professor. Professor yes, it's a great pleasure, and indeed uh, an honor to be with you here today. Um, it's, uh, when we think about it, today is, I think, the 100th day since we initiated the lockdown in South Africa. 
Unfortunately, it's not a day to celebrate, but a day to reflect, to reflect on what this epidemic has done to us as a society, has done to us as a people, and the way in which it has changed our world. What I hope to do in the next 25 minutes or so is I hope to give you a perspective of the way the coronavirus epidemic has impacted South Africa. And I will share with you some of the latest information and evidence that we have available on this epidemic. So let's start at the beginning. How did it all begin? Well, the warning signs were there. In 2002, a coronavirus from a Chinese bat went into a civet. A civet looks a bit like a cat, but it's not a cat. It's actually a different mammal. And from the civet infected humans. It caused an outbreak in China and in Hong Kong. And because it caused an acute respiratory illness, it was given the name SARS. Don't confuse it with the revenue service, the tax collection. This is a severe acute respiratory syndrome. Patients were dying of this disease. Roughly about 15% of those who acquired SARS coronavirus died. One important characteristic emerged that this virus actually wasn't very good at spreading. And so it never spread beyond China. In fact, in South Africa, we've sort of barely heard about it. But that wasn't the end. That first sign was followed by a second sign, this time in the Middle East, principally in Saudi Arabia and the neighboring countries, where again, a coronavirus from a bat went into camels. From camels, it acquired the ability to infect humans and it caused a new coronavirus epidemic called MERS. MERS stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. MERS had the same problem that the original SARS had. It couldn't really spread, but it was a killer. 40% or so of those who got infected with MERS died. The epidemic was contained in the Middle East and it slowly petered out. And that was back in 2012. Now, some eight years later, another coronavirus from the bats. Remember, bats have millions of coronaviruses. This time, the bats that were being sold in the Wuhan market are thought to have a coronavirus that jumped into pangolins. Pangolins are actually animals that are from Africa. They're widely available in South Africa, for example. They're the easiest animals to catch because if you chase them, they roll themselves up in a ball and you can simply just pick them up. So they are poached uh, uh, very often. And in China, they are regarded as medicinal. So it's thought that a coronavirus from a bat infected the pangolins. When it infected the pangolins, 
it then ab- uh, developed the ability to infect humans. And that's how it's thought that the original epidemic occurred. Now, bats have lots of coronaviruses. We don't worry about it because those viruses cannot infect humans. They cannot enter a human cell. So even if the coronaviruses from the bats were all over around, it wouldn't make any difference to us because it can't enter any of our cells. We know that this particular coronavirus, this one which is similar to the original SARS, and so it's called SARS coronavirus 2, this particular coronavirus is 99% similar to a coronavirus from bats in China. But it's missing one key part. How can it infect human cells? Well, from the pangolins, a coronavirus was isolated that could infect humans. So that's why it's thought to have come from the pangolins. This particular coronavirus that was present in the pangolins had something that was critical. Its spike protein was able to attach to a receptor on human cells. That receptor we call the ACE2 receptor. Its full name is the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor. Now remember that the coronavirus is called coronavirus because it looks like a crown. It's got all these spikes off it. Those spikes from the virus and the pangolin, those spikes could now attach to the ACE2 receptor, which meant it could now enter human cells. ACE2 receptors are widespread in humans. We have ACE2 receptors in the cells in our nose. We have ACE2 receptors at the back of our throats. We have ACE2 receptors in our lungs, in our liver, in our kidneys. We have ACE2 receptors everywhere. The ability to attach to an ACE2 receptor and to be able to enter human cells is critical. And that's what makes this virus so deadly. It is able to attach to the ACE2 receptor with high affinity, which means it can spread. And it can spread from human to human. It doesn't need the pangolins. It doesn't need the bats anymore. It becomes a virus that can spread by itself. I've shown you two pictures on the right-hand side of the, the Wuhan seafood market where live animals are routinely sold, including the two pangolins that you see at the Wuhan seafood market. Now, there's some debate about whether there's one coronavirus or there's two coronaviruses that are currently spreading. Let me just say that it's an academic exercise because the two coronaviruses are very similar. They only differ by two minor nucleotides. And for all intents and purposes, for this discussion, we can stick with that there's one coronavirus. So how does this coronavirus spread? Well, there are three ways. The first is through person-to-person contact with the droplets. A person who is infected, when the virus grows in their nose and in the back of their throat, the virus replicates and makes millions of viruses. Those viruses are present in the little droplets. Those droplets come out of our mouths. Just when we speak, 
when we sing, when we talk, when we uh, are sneezing, when we are coughing. And if those droplets get onto another person, the virus is able to spread. Let me show you at the bottom. This is from a South Korean telephone call center. The way that call center is organized is there, there are 13 workstations on each table. When one person on that table became infected, it led to nine people all acquiring the virus from that one person, just because they spent a lot of time together and that they were in close proximity to, to, to each other. Because they intermingle, and they share their tea rooms and they, they, they interact with each other so much in this call center in South Korea. On the third picture here, you can see how almost every table has somebody now who has the virus. In total, 79 out of 137 employees became positive. Being close to somebody, in within a small distance, they talk about within one meter, within one and a half meters, you are at very high risk if you are close to that person for any length of time. So this close proximity is a very important way in which the virus spreads. But it also spreads in another way. And that is that even if you are not close by, it is able to contaminate the surface. It is able when a person breathes and speaks, that person will breathe out these little droplets and these little droplets will fall onto surfaces. And then when you put your hands there, then it will then uh, contaminate your hands. And when you touch with your hands, you touch your face, your nose, your mouth, that's how the virus spreads. In this study from the Journal of the American Medical Association, they looked at how one patient in a ward was able to put the virus and contaminate the entire area. That person, his bed rail, the chair that was next to his bed, the light switches that were behind the bed, the doctor's stethoscope, the, the fan in the outlet, the door handle, the toilet bowl, everything became infected. When a person has this virus, they can contaminate the environment. And when that environment is uh, contaminated, the virus can survive on certain uh, surfaces for a long time. Mostly it dies quickly. In fact, when the virus is on your hands, it only lives for about five, 10 minutes, and then it's dead. So that's why it, if you frequently wash your hands and you uh, sanitize, you really are not concerned if you've touched something. But there's a third way. The importance of this third way is not clear. There is some debate within the research community about exactly how important this is. But it's thought that these very small droplets, less than five microns, remember microns is one millionth of a meter, in other words, one thousandth of a millimeter, these very small droplets, they can remain floating in the air for quite a long time. But we're not sure whether they can really cause infection and how much. But it is one instance, and this comes from China, where 
a patient, a person who had visited Wuhan and had come back to Beijing, went to a restaurant to have a meal. That person is here indicated as patient zero. Patient zero is sitting here on table A. In this restaurant, after the dinner, a few days later, it was discovered that all of these people here across the three tables all became infected. Now we know that by droplets, that within one and a half meters, the droplets are pretty much gone. So there's no more droplets. So if you are sitting four and a half meters away, as this person is, you didn't get infected by the droplets. So it's thought that it was the airborne transmission. But then the question was asked, if this person became infected, why not this person? What happened here? Why didn't this table get exposed? Well, it turns out that when they did the analysis, they showed that it was the air conditioning. Because the air conditioning moved the air in a very specific way across these three tables, that's what led to all three tables, people at all three tables getting infected. So we now understand that it's not just proximity. This virus is able to spread through the small droplets in the air. But its importance is at this stage not very clear. And so that's one of the reasons now why we say that if you go to a restaurant, make sure the air conditioning is off and that the windows are open because windows are our best protection. Now that I've told you about how this virus spreads, how is it spreading in South Africa? I've chosen just the Eastern Cape. I could have given you data from the Western Cape or anywhere else for that matter. But I thought the Eastern Cape made the points much more clearly. So let me describe how this virus has spread and how we are now in the midst of quite a severe epidemic in the Eastern Cape. So in the Eastern Cape, they had their first case on the 21st of March. Then they had in April, several spreading events. So if you look at the list on the right-hand side, you can see that there were small outbreaks. Right? Outbreaks in uh, the checkers in Walmer, where there were 33 staff members who got infected, the Woolworths in Walmer, the ShopRites in Siambuya. So you've got supermarkets and grocery stores that are now our main source of spread. And this is under restriction level five of the lockdown. So the restriction level five, the shops that are open are the grocery stores, are the supermarkets, and that's where it starts spreading. 18 people in the Woolworths in Walmart, 36 people in the ShopRite. But let me tell you about one particular way in which this virus spread. And that is that in this funeral that occurred in Zwili, one person who had the virus spread it to 10 others at the funeral. One of those 10 was a prison warder. This prison warder attended the funeral, acquired the virus, and when he went back to work at West Bank Prison, a few days later, he became infectious. 
He then spread it to the other warders in the prison and to the prisoners. There were then 29 infections in the West Bank prison. The warders from the prison then took it into the West Bank community. There were then 33 cases in the West Bank community amongst their family members and neighbors. One of those that was attending was in that West Bank community was a family that was visiting from Mdansane. All three of them became infected. They took it to Mdansane. So you can see how from one little incident, you can have this virus spreading very rapidly. In fact, we now have a better understanding that about 70% of those people who become infected simply do not spread it. So just, they don't spread it. They don't spread it to their family members. They don't spread it to neighbors. Most people just don't spread the virus, mainly because they're good about following the rules. The rules about masking, the rules about contact, about keeping distance. Uh, they just, they're good about that, but they just don't spread the virus. It's a small number of people that spread the virus. But when they do, they can really spread it far and wide. So why is it so difficult to stop the spread of this coronavirus? Why is it that the whole world is battling to stop it? And it's really five reasons. The first is that even before a person knows they have this virus, they are already spreading it. For three to four days before the person becomes symptomatic, they are already spreading this virus. It's what we call pre-symptomatic infectiousness. Among those who get infected, there are those individuals, particularly younger people, who will just never get symptoms. They are what we call asymptomatic infectiousness. Even though they never get symptoms, they never get sick, they will continue to spread the virus. And why is spreading it such a challenge? And here I'm presenting you some data that came from a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine. So if you look at this article, what it shows, that when this virus in the droplets falls on things like copper, on cardboard and paper, it really dies very quickly. Within a matter of hours, it's gone, it's dead. Not a problem. So when you get your newspaper, you don't really worry about it because if there was any virus on it, it's, it's dead. However, if you're looking at stainless steel, and when you're looking at plastic, the hard plastic, not the soft plastic on which you make paper bags and so on, but the hard plastic, the virus can survive for three to four days on those surfaces. When I went to, you know, when the director general of the Department, National Department of Health, you know, phoned me late on a Friday and he says, you've got to go to St. Augustine's Hospital. We've got an outbreak there. You, you need to go and have a look and tell me what do you want me to do. So I went there and I looked at the number of cases that had occurred. I walked through the ward where the, 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 the patient was and I said, oh my goodness, you have stainless steel everywhere here. No wonder it's so hard to stop the virus from spreading here. So we had to set up new procedures for them to ensure that the stainless steel is cleaned on a regular basis and all the hard plastic surfaces as well. 
So it's really a challenge to slow this virus down. And before you know it, it has spread to hundreds of people. And so you get this rapid way in which it spreads. That unlike influenza, which spreads very slowly, this virus, before we know it, it's already spreading. And you get these super spreading events. In fact, the first patient, patient zero at St. Augustine's, when he arrived there one evening, uh, he was identified as a potential uh, coronavirus patient. He came just to get a swab. He, was, he wasn't coming to be admitted. And when he went to the outpatient department, to the emergency room, they swabbed him there and he left. His virus and the, the doctor that attended to him spread it to an elderly woman who was in a bed on the other side through his stethoscope or through something. She then spread this virus. She spread it in the Burr Buchanan old age home. She spread it to several patients. She spread it to the staff. It went like wildfire. We now know that patient zero who went to St. Augustine's to have that swab is responsible for 14% of all infections in KwaZulu-Natal when the investigation was done in April. Just to give you some idea how important just one individual can be. And then even when you think you got it under control, like Singapore, Singapore had it under control, South Korea had it under control. Um, you know, it's, when you are able as a country to control this virus, before you know it, it comes back. You get these repeated waves that come back. As you might have heard, China, which released all its restrictions, they had a whole lot of hundreds of cases in Beijing last week. And they've now had to lock down Beijing because they have a new epidemic, a new wave that's going through China now. So what is this virus? Is it just like SARS? Is it a respiratory disease? Well, the answer to that is actually very complicated. And we're only beginning to scratch the surface about how much we understand about this virus. What do we know? We know that when a person becomes infected with this virus, it attaches to the cells in the nose and the throat. It grows in those cells and replicates and grows into the millions of viruses. In a, in a large number of people, about 70, 80% of people, they will clear it at that stage. They will be perfectly fine. They just get a bit of a sore throat, a bit of sneezing, a bit of a fever, but not a problem. They, get, they overcome it and it's perfectly fine. In a small proportion, the virus proceeds down into the lungs. When it reaches the lungs, it then grows in the cells of the little air sacs in the lungs because those cells have the ACE2 receptor. When the virus infects those cells in the sacs and grows, that's when we have a problem. Because in a proportion of patients, not everyone, but in a small proportion of patients, 
their bodies react to this virus with a huge, enormous overreaction of immunity. We call it the cytokine storm. And when the virus reaches that and causes that cytokine storm, it then spreads throughout the body. The whole body is now infected and the whole body has this response. Even if there's no virus there, it's not a problem. The, it's actually the immune response that causes the problem. And one of the problems it causes, it causes, it causes clotting. And literally, this article, this picture I'm showing you from Nature, one of our prestigious journals, literally, it reads, every COVID-19 symptom we know right now from head to toe. Because this virus causes stroke. This virus causes confusion, headaches. In the toes, it causes these red blotches. The little vessels of the toes, they start bleeding into the tissue. And you get these little reddish, they look a bit purplish actually as well. And we call that COVID toes. It's even got its own name. So quite literally, this is a disease from head to toe. I can, I can tell you, I mean, I read nothing less than a dozen, two dozen articles a day about this virus. And I can tell you, I know very little about this virus. We, we know so little about it. It's going to take us years before we fully understand it. To give us an idea as to how little we know, if you had asked me two weeks ago, does this virus cause diabetes? I would have laughed you off. What do you mean causing diabetes? No, it doesn't. Well, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine last week shows that the virus causes diabetes. It causes diabetes because the beta cells in the pancreas that produce insulin have the ACE2 receptor. And because they have the ACE2 receptor, the virus can infect them and it causes the cells to die. And so the cells you need to produce insulin start dying. It causes diabetes. That's what we are learning. So we learn something new every day. This virus has changed our world. Let me show you how it has changed our world. In the blue color are countries that have no restrictions. And I'm going to walk you through each month so you can see how it changes. In the yellow are countries that have a little bit of restrictions, mostly voluntary. And in the orange are countries that have substantial restrictions, right? like lockdowns. So if you look at the 1st of March, we were merrily carrying along. But two countries had severe epidemics and were in lockdown. China and Italy. But you can see there were several other countries in the East also had restrictions on the 1st of March. 1st of April, our world has changed. Our world has changed. We now have most of Asia, including India, Russia, all of them under lockdowns. In fact, on the 1st of April, 86 countries had either national or subnational lockdowns, including South Africa. Look at the situation on the 1st of May. 1st of May, now you've got China releasing its restrictions. Africa now is largely under lockdown. 
Australia is under lockdown. New Zealand is under lockdown. What's the situation on the 1st of June? Well, China that released its restrictions is back to restrictions because of the cases in Beijing. South Africa and much of Southern Africa is releasing their lockdown. Australia is back to playing rugby and so to New Zealand. So it is changing our world month by month. But we are learning that we can't really sustain lockdowns. The cost in terms of the economy, in terms of livelihood, the ability to earn income, especially among those who are self-employed, is just too harsh and too serious an impact. We can do lockdowns only for short periods. So we have to use our full toolbox, the social distancing, the hand hygiene, the cloth masks, all of those things we have to use in our efforts. And in South Africa, we have set our target. Our goal is to flatten the curve. We're not saying we're going to have no cases, no death. No, no, no. We always knew. I called it the difficult truth that this epidemic was going to happen. We just didn't want it to all happen at once early on when we were not ready. We wanted to be prepared. We wanted to build our field hospitals. We wanted to ensure that every hospital, you, you would go in there, they would triage you. We wanted to ensure we have PPE, we had the testing capability, all of that. We had to prepare. So now, when this epidemic is growing, we are much better prepared. So when we imposed that lockdown and we tried to flatten the curve, did we do so? Did it actually flatten? Well, look at the way in which the epidemics grew. And I chose the BRICS countries and I chose the two worst epidemics, the US and the UK. And I chose the two best, or, or not call it, let's not call it best, but the two least uh, harmful, least bad epidemics. And that's Australia and South Korea. So if you look at South Africa, we gave this epidemic at this point, very early on, late March, early April, we gave it a big thump so that it didn't grow like the way the epidemics grew in the UK or in China or any of these other countries. We flattened that curve. We gave it a knock. And then because we flattened it in that way, we didn't have the explosive epidemic we expected in April. It's only coming now in July. And that flattening of the curve is what we had set out to do. And we have done so successfully. And you can look at that in terms of cases or deaths, doesn't matter. So how do we know we flatten that curve? Well, we have steadily increased testing, as you can see on the left-hand side. But before the lockdown, before the 26th of March, the epidemic was doubling every two days. Every two days, the epidemic was twice as big as it was two days ago. Over the five weeks of the level five lockdown, we slowed the spread of the virus down to doubling only once every 15 days. So from doubling every two days to doubling every 15 days, that's the impact the first restrictions had. And we were successful in doing that because it was done early. As we ease the lockdown, when we move to level four restrictions, we can see the doubling is going up. And now that we've eased the restrictions into level three, it is going to double much more 
frequently now. And you can see the cases are going up quite rapidly at this stage. So how rapidly? Well, the epidemic has grown fastest in the Western Cape, or, and you can see we've got a very substantial epidemic in the Western Cape. It is also growing quite fast, doubling currently about once every 11 days in the Eastern Cape. In fact, in the Western Cape, it's now slowing down and we're seeing a bit of a plateau, but it's too early to tell. But look at Gauteng. It's now doubling every nine days in Gauteng. We always knew that Joburg was going to be our problem. Joburg has, uh, Gauteng, has the largest population in South Africa and has the smallest space. Density is a real problem with this virus, right? Because when you're dense, you don't have the distance. So you can't keep the one and a half meter gap. And so we are going to see one serious epidemic in Gauteng. And it's going to be, I mean, Gauteng, Joburg is our New York equivalent. It is quite impressive when you look at what Gauteng was able to achieve in the lockdown. From a doubling of every two days prior to the lockdown to doubling 21 days under level five and 21 days under level four. That just gives you some idea about how well they did in Gauteng. It's the same in KwaZulu-Natal. It is quite impressive that we went from doubling three days to doubling 12 days to doubling 22 days. And this doubling 12 days is mainly because of the epidemic that came out of St. Augustine's Hospital. So you have to say that a lot has been achieved in being able to slow the spread of the virus. But now we are easing the restrictions. And so the virus will spread and we will see epidemics. This is just showing you the number of weekly cases we're seeing in each of the provinces. And you can see the red line of Gauteng on its way up and the green line of Western Cape settling down. KZN, it's coming. It's just a matter of time. If you look at this graph, which shows you incidence risk, you get a better sense of how the virus is spreading. But this takes into account the population. So when you see a situation like the Northwest, featuring here as the third uh, largest epidemic, uh, the most third most serious epidemic after the Western Cape and Eastern Cape, it's because even though they have a small number of cases, they have a very small population. So the number of cases that they have is disproportionate for their population. So let me end off with just touching on the evolving epidemic. So traditionally you have the epidemic where the virus is spreading, and you try to flatten the curve and you try to get to containment, that's in the yellow color, where you've got very low transmission and sporadic transmission. So that's what's been achieved now in Australia, in New Zealand, in South Korea, and so on, in Vietnam. However, we also have a situation now that in places like South Africa, India, Russia, Pakistan, we have a problem in that we had an epidemic. We tried to flatten the curve. We might have flattened the curve a little bit, but we'd never got to containment. We've never contained the virus. And so because we didn't get to containment, we are now having to lift our restrictions and try to coexist with the virus. Normally, you would do it the other way around. 
So we are in this very awkward situation that we have moved at the same time that the epidemic is spreading and the virus is spreading around. We're also easing our restrictions and we're trying to coexist with the virus. We're trying to go back to school. We're trying to go back to work because we, want, we need to be able to do that until we have a vaccine or a cure. And so we now have shifted our emphasis. We are no longer treating this epidemic like a sprint. We are treating it like a marathon. We understand we're going to have to live with this viral threat for a long time to come. We've never, human, humanity has never successfully made a vaccine against the coronavirus before. We've made vaccines against polio, against measles, but never against the coronavirus. So this is new for us. We've also never made a vaccine any time within, you know, it takes about five to 10 years to make a vaccine. You can't just make one like that. It takes time. So we are now doing it at real fast speed. I mean, this is at, uh, you know, incredible jet speed. They call it warp speed. We are really trying to do this incredibly fast. But even with that speed, we are unlikely to have a vaccine anytime before the end of next year. So now we have to learn to coexist with this virus. We have to live with this threat. And we're going to do so by mitigating it with prevention. We're going to try and control the outbreaks like the ones I showed you in the Eastern Cape. And we're going to transition from anxiety to self-efficacy. In that initially, we knew we couldn't get everybody to start social distancing, putting on masks and so on back in March. We had to institute the lockdown because we had to act at that time. We needed to do so urgently and we did so. And it had its effect, but we can't sustain the lockdown. So we have to shift. And we have to shift to a point where each person now has to become motivated to act, to ensure that they follow the rules. Because when we as individuals are motivated and follow the rules, we get to motivated communities because when a person does not obey the rules, when the person does not do the social distancing, wearing a mask or washing hands, that person is not putting themselves at risk only. That person is putting their family at risk. That person is putting their grandparents at risk. That person is putting the whole community at risk. So we are completely interdependent just like the way in which we've always understood Ubuntu, that I am because you are. So I am safe because you are safe. You are safe, so I am safe. So our interdependence is going to be central. So let me end off by just concluding that South Africa has started flattening the curve. We've got a lot more to do to keep flattening the curve because flattening the curve is not once off. But we didn't have a March peak. The Western Cape transmission, you see, is started under level five restrictions, and the rest of the provinces are following now. We're now trying to reduce community seeding from outbreaks, and we're trying to slow down the super spreading events. We have teams of people just trying to focus on that. We're trying to get one step ahead of the virus. I call this period, it's the damned if you do and damned if you don't situation because we are easing restrictions while the cases are going up. So you tell somebody, okay, you can now go to church, but the epidemic is getting worse. How can you, you didn't, you couldn't go to church when the epidemic was, you know, small. 
Now the epidemic is growing. So we are doing things that don't make sense because we have to. It's now no longer purely on the basis of health reasons. We have many other things to consider and people need to work and people need to go and do whatever is required for their livelihoods. And so the main challenges we're grappling with is trying to get more test kits, trying to control the hotspots, and we're trying to get people to take ownership of prevention so that they can sustainably implement prevention from the toolbox. If we don't do that, if we do not, each of us does not take on the responsibility of protecting myself, protecting my family, protecting my community. If we don't do that, we are going to get one very serious epidemic. If we do, we could bring this epidemic under control and we could create a situation where we will not see as harsh an epidemic as was seen in other countries like Italy and the US. Thank you very much. Professor, thank you very much for that very insightful uh, presentation. I'm now gonna call upon uh, Dr. Musa, uh, who is a specialist physician in, uh, to assist in the facilitating of the Q&A. Uh, Dr. Musa, if I could ask you to please activate the video. Uh, we have approximately 13 questions, Professor, but I think we'll only have time for maybe four or five. Uh, Dr. Musa, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professors Karim and Quraysha. Uh, there's a hell of a lot of questions coming in, but we are restricted to time. But I, what I've done is I have tried to look at all the questions and the most important question that's coming out from multiple sources, parents and educators is, Professors, what is your opinion right now with the opening of schools and the risk to educators and, and uh, students coming in, seeing that there is a rising number of schools that have to close down? Uh, what is your advice to a parent, number one, and number two, to the educator? Sure. We have uh, much more evidence today than we had back in March when we closed the schools. We know three things that are much clearer now. The first is children are at much lower risk of acquiring the virus, even when exposed, because they have fewer ACE2 receptors in their nose and their throat. So they're at lower risk, even if they're exposed. The second is that when children do get the virus, when they are exposed and they get this disease, they get it very mild. In fact, most of them will not even know they had it. We now have a clear understanding that this disease simply does not impact on children in the way it impacts, like other diseases impact, like influenza. So for children, it's basically a mild disease. There are some severe conditions, but they are very rare, like Kawasaki disease. They've only occurred in a handful of children, and even those children have recovered. So it's really... A very, uh, a very mild disease in children. The third is that children are actually at higher risk when they go shopping to the checkers and the Woolworths and the ShopRite than they are when they go to school. The risk in school is much lower. We, in fact, if you have children that are sitting at home and are not interacting with others, that's a real problem because children need that stimulation. If they sit at home, all they do is play computer games 
and they get computer brain, where they, they start thinking that the world is the, what's on the computer. And they begin to lose the ability to interact with humans. So it's really important that we get our children back to school, but we've got to do so carefully. We need to do so in a way that we mitigate their risk. And it is eminently feasible to do so. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I think it's fair to, to observe that the schools in the Durban area where, where I'm living have been extremely proactive and very diligent in all the protective measures. Despite that, however, alarmingly, we are hearing of educators. So while we understand your answer regarding the students, and I think that's quite, uh, you have explained it very well, the educators themselves who are at a higher age group uh, also having to go back home uh, uh, how would you advise them, you know, as a, as a practicing clinician, we are getting requests to, by teachers, you know, to request that they be allowed to stay away in view of their comorbidities. How would you advise the educators? So based on what we know now from the data that we've seen from the Western Cape, where they've done a pretty good analysis, I think we can go on the basis that any uh, adult below the age of 60. In fact, the analysis can even be 65, but let's for argument's sake say 60. That those below the age of 60 are very, they're quite low risk. If they have comorbidities, and if they have a singular comorbidity, then they are at a slightly higher risk. But when they have two or more comorbidities, then they are at a high enough risk that they should stay at home. There is one exception to that, and I would say that that exception is important, and that is that uh, people with uncontrolled diabetes and uncontrolled hypertension, even if they are younger than 60, until they get their diabetes and their hypertension under control, they shouldn't go to school if they are teachers. Why they should have uncontrolled diabetes and hypertension is not obviously to me, because you should aim to control your diabetes and your hypertension. But if it's uncontrolled, it's not a good idea to go to school. That's what we have found from the data we have. So I can summarize it. If you're a teacher, if you're above the age of 65, let's say 60, because just to make it simple. If you're above the age of 60, you should preferably stay at home because the risk is high if you acquire it. And if you have comorbidities, that's even more important. If you're below the age of 60, if you've got two or more comorbidities, it's preferable that you stay at home. Or go to work, as we are doing at, in our environment. You go to work, but you, you do non-exposure work. So that you, it's not that you have to stay at home, because when you go shopping and so on, you also place yourself at risk. What you do is you go into a non-exposed environment. You know, give them administrative work, give them office work to do, just so that they're not exposing themselves. So that's the approach I would take. Thank you so much. Your answer has been extremely succinct, and it answers so many of our questions that were directed in that way. I think, uh, I think there was a bit of uh, confusion in the community when we lumped the risk as being number one, diabetes, two, hypertension, three, ischemic heart disease, cancer, and uh, COPD. But one, I think the medical profession didn't uh, emphasize enough 
that it was poorly controlled diabetes with HbA1c levels, poorly controlled uh, asthma or poorly controlled hypertension. So much, uh, uh, thank you so much for answering that so clearly. Uh, I just got a couple of more questions because we are running out of time, but there are, you know, the questions are coming in and I'm trying to get the most important ones. Uh, Professor, uh, I'm a director at Midlands Medical Center in Pittsburgh, and we are quite amazed at the speed at which this infection is spreading. Our hospitals are filling up. We are treating at the moment more patients at home than not. So the, the reality is this, that patients are now being turned away because we have got no capacity. So what has happened in the community is that a lot of people are buying oxygen, home oxygen units, either concentrators or ordinary cylinders, and there's a sudden shortage of these. What is your opinion? Uh, I have an opinion. I have a, a guideline myself, but I would like to hear what you think about peeping, pre people preparing themselves who are at high risk for treating themselves at home with a bit more certainty with devices that will be giving them more knowledge about the state of illness they are in. So there are several questions that were also asked about high flow nasal cannula and so on. Let me tell you, the evidence yeah. is quite clear. There are now several studies that show that high flow nasal cannula, helmets and various other uh, approaches to providing a higher flow of oxygen to patients that uh, have uh, an oxygen saturation that is below 94%, those have been shown to be very helpful. In fact, you can reduce the number of ventilated patients where you need mechanical ventilation if you use these technologies. In particular, helmets have been shown to be particularly good. Uh, so too the nasal cannulas, actually. Nasal cannulas, very good, because they're providing you with about 20 liters of oxygen every minute, uh, which is pretty close to what a ventilator will do. Right? Ventilators are doing about uh, 30 liters per minute. I would take a very dumb view of anybody who's planning on taking oxygen at home. That's really not a good idea. Oxygen is not a toy that you can just mess around with at home. If you are not a doctor, let me tell you, don't play around with this disease. You need professional care and you need it provided by professionals. If you are feeling short of breath, go to hospital. Simple. There's no, I don't need to debate this with you. If you are short of breath, go to a hospital. If you're not sure, use a pulse oximeter. I'll show you what a pulse oximeter, that's what it looks like. Very simple thing. You just put your finger in there and it tells you what's your saturation. If your saturation is 95%, you get into a car, call an ambulance and you go to hospital. Because this virus disease creeps you before you know it. Before you know it, you're short of breath and your sats are low. Once your sats are low, sats means your saturated, oxygen saturation, amount of oxygen in your blood. You need professional care because we need to monitor your sats. We need to monitor your tachycardia. We don't want you now to go and get cardiac problems because the moment your sats go down too low, you know, you start, all your other problems start kicking in. And we need to make sure we keep your sats up. And as soon as we can do that, and we can do that now actually quite easily without putting on ventilators and so on, 
only a very small proportion of people need ventilators. In fact, we don't have any ventilators anyway. We only have a handful. So luckily, only a handful really need it. Uh, so we can readily manage you. There is no reason to panic. There is no reason to go and buy equipment. Thank you so much for that, Professor. I think the education, uh, the message we have been sending out in Durban, uh, knowing the, what, what challenges we face in our hospital right now and the anxieties in the population, as we have advised that everybody who is at risk does get a pulse oximeter, I notice the price has come down to about 550 then. And I think from the, from, the, uh, from the practicing point of view, there's a lot of anxiety as well. So people tend to hyperventilate and then they present to hospital and they clog the system. So I have just received a question from a lady right now who says, I've, I, I have got COVID positive. I am short of breath. I go to the hospitals and they turn me away. And this is a reality right now, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it's so scary that we're early in an epidemic, yet we are doing that right now. So I'm very happy you have clarified the, the pulse oximeter as a home aid. And uh, uh, not many people, people are now buying oxygen, uh, oxygen concentrators rather than cylinders, which would be hazardous. I have to do that. Waste of time. Okay. Save your money. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do any of that. By the way, there's two other good questions, if I can just answer them quickly while I have you. The one is that there's a paper published yesterday in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, and notice there's another one also in Lancet showing that vitamin D supplementation makes no difference to COVID outcomes. So vitamin D, there was a hypothesis floating around about get sunshine so you get your vitamin D and so you prevent COVID. Doesn't work. The other question was, you know, what about children? Are they super spreaders? So right now, no child has been found to be a super spreader. That's very interesting. And in fact, one study done in Germany showed that of household transmission, children account for less than 8% of household transmission. So children really do not pose a significant risk. It's not they pose no risk, but their risk is minimal of transmission to other people. Having said that, you know, I would not have our children, whether they go to school or not, I would not have them, or adults for that matter, interacting with the aged. The grandparents, I said that on national television, grandparents, please look after yourself. Don't mingle with other people. It's just too high a risk. You're carrying too high a risk. Just keep yourself away. You don't need to do so for long. Just till about September, October, and you should be fine. I'll ask, answer one other question that was asked. You know, people are having gatherings, funerals and weddings and so on. They can do so because you can have 50 people. Uh, let me tell you, not a good idea. If I got an invitation, even to a dinner party with three other people, not interested. Not interested. If you go, you must go accepting you're putting your risk in 49 other people's hands. And remember, they can spread this virus before they are symptomatic and while they're asymptomatic. And in an epidemic that's growing as it is right now, if you were in Gauteng, your chance of having one person in 49 with the virus is pretty high. It's a chance I would not take. When the bishops asked me, you know, would I go to church? 
they can have a church, 50 people. I said, absolutely not. I would not take that risk. I can play at home. When the time is right and the epidemic's in, in an ebb, yeah, I'll go to church at that time if I wanted to, or mosque, or you can choose whichever place of worship you wish. But until then, especially because we've got large numbers of old people who go to church, it's not a good idea. So if you do so, just do so accepting the risk that you carry to yourself and that you pose to others when you go to those kinds of functions. So I think I've answered several of the questions quickly. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I just want, I just got a uh, time. They've told me we've got a bit of, they've extended the answer question answer by five minutes. Uh, I'd just like to say that uh, the patients that we are currently seeing in the hospital right now, because of the fact that the, uh, we have had three months of learning from the overseas experience, that our patients are seemingly doing extremely well. I must tell you that the, uh, it's very rare to have a mortality either in Midlands Medical Center in Maddensburg. I think we had one mortality in the past three months. Mm -hmm. However, and even at Ahmed Al-Khadi, I mean, with, with the drugs that we are using, the corticosteroids and the, uh, the, the anticoagulants, et cetera, have really made a difference. So we, we find being aggressive, we are very happy with the way our patients are doing. And today I'm going to be discharging two of my patients. Uh, but what, what I like to say is, Anxiety is becoming very, very severe in our community right now. And this is, uh, I'm glad you highlighted the pulse oximeter because, you know, you know you're in trouble if your oxygen levels are less than 95. But if it's more than 95, you can probably relax rather than presenting and overloading the hospital system, which is right now not a very friendly environment. People are waiting for over four hours. Uh, one uh, question I would like to ask you is, uh, if you can... The statistics that are kept by Muslim organizations show that there is a disproportionate increase in the incidence of COVID deaths as well as infections amongst the Muslims. Uh, now, I think you've answered the question, what makes us different to the other, other uh, sections of our community? But perhaps if you can just emphasize that a little bit more, because I think the people are not listening from what I gather in terms of going to the mosque and being shoulder to shoulder. What is your opinion uh, on that? Without you being controversial, from a religious point of view, from giving medical advice. Uh, I'm not sure I understood the question. Your question was, would I, would I go to mosque? Yes. And would you stand next to somebody or would you be two meters apart? And would you keep all the windows open in the mosque? So, you know, it is feasible to reduce the risk of spreading the virus in a mosque situation or in a church situation. That's doable. But you cannot reduce it down to a, to a level that I would consider acceptable for myself. And I'm speaking about myself. Yes. You can decide your risk level you're willing to tolerate is different. The risk level I'm willing to tolerate is different. I'm willing to tolerate only a minimal risk. Once it's above minimal risk, in other words, it's now what I call appreciable risk, I'm not willing to accept that. I'm not willing to accept that because in this kind of situation where you've got large numbers of people, it's very hard to tell the 51st person that comes to mosque, sorry, go home. So what happens? You will overfill the mosque. When you overfill the mosque, you're putting me at risk, you're putting other people at risk, 
and your, your distancing becomes a challenge, opening windows is really important. That's just take that as a given. You should always open the windows, right? Because I've already explained to you from the restaurant example why opening windows is really important. But that's not a panacea. That's only dealing with one of the three ways in which this virus spreads. If you are bumping against the others and you get into a situation where you are close to others, even if it's in a very temporary way, you know, you are heading for trouble. And my biggest concern is not only for me, because I might be positive, I don't know it, I go to mosque and the elderly folk, because there are large numbers of elderly people going to the mosque, not a good idea. Because if they get sick, their probability of survival is very low compared to mine. It's not a risk I'm willing to take. It's not a risk I'm willing to put them into. But again, I want to emphasize, this is just my viewpoint. It's not, I'm not stating it as a fact. You can have a different viewpoint. You are entitled to it. I'm just giving you my viewpoint. Until we are in a situation that the cases are at a very low level, I would rather read the namaz at home. Doctor, thank you very much for your time. And we do appreciate uh, the fact that you have indulged us with a few minutes extra. Um, I'm now call upon our co-chair, Mr. Zaid Faiki, uh, to do a vote of thanks. Again, thank you to both Dr. Ashok Musa and Professor Salim Abdul Karim. Zaid, over to you. Thank you, Mohammed Kakra, for facilitating today's session. Firstly, I'd like to thank uh, our guest speaker, of, uh, Professor Salim Abdul Karim, for making the time and enlightening us with the information that you presented to us. Uh, it's really, really uh, puts us into a specific frame of mind in terms of the real risk that we face and the, the, the anxiety levels that we've get, uh, we get exposed to from through social media. I'd like to also thank Mr. Abdul Razak Musa in arranging professor for making, uh, to, to attend this we, uh, webinar. Much appreciated. Uh, Dr. Ashraf Musa for facilitating the Q&A session. Uh, there was a lot of questions. Uh, you did a good job in terms of consolidating the questions and getting the pertinent one out there. I'd also like to thank uh, Albaraka Bank for hosting this webinar on their technology platform. Uh, Mohammed Kaka, thank you for that as well, for facilitating that with, within the Albaraka team. Uh, our media partners for live streaming, streaming the event in parallel with this webinar. That includes Salam Media, Al Ansar, Radio Islam, CII, and ITV. Lastly, I would like to thank the uh, participants on the webinar and together to, uh, with the listeners on the various radio stations and live, live streaming platforms. Muslim for Humanity, once again, is a donor-led association that provides a platform of advocacy, advisory, and technical support to all stakeholders to best serve humanity out there. We trust that this webinar has been of value to you, your families, and the organizations you represent. We as Muslim for Humanity look forward in hosting another webinar for you with the objective of sharing and collaborating. We thank you very much for making the time during your weekend to be part of this webinar and this live streaming of uh, presentation by Professor Salim Abdul Karim. And we'd like to wish you a great weekend. Goodbye and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.